Hello, everyone. Welcome to Typhoon Talks, brought to you by Typhoon Consulting, a boutique management consultancy headquartered in Hong Kong. And I'm Chen Yang. Today, I'm joined by David, Ayush, Eve, and Freya to carry on our monthly news review. Welcome, guys. Hi, Chen. Hi, Chen. Hi, good morning. This month, we are going to discuss three interesting pieces of news, including the murder of China's banking and insurance regulators, U.S. full-scale a trade war with China, and Toys R Us business crisis. To kick off, let's look at the first piece of news, which is the merger of China's banking and insurance regulators. So last week, the National People's Congress of China announced the merger of the two regulators. Why does China want to create such a giant financial regulator? In recent few years, we see a lot of government shakeup, and this is just one of them. So after the merger, the central bank will oversee a total market of 42 trillion US dollars. I think there are two implications for this move. So one is that the central government wants to further centralize the power, and the other purpose is to reduce the shadow banking sector. So in terms of that, I think this is, again, if you look at this in the context of Xi Jinping, having the um, lifting the limits on the number of times that the, the president can serve, is, is this something that's continuing on the same line? We're, we're seeing more centralization, greater predictability, not just in terms of the central government becoming more centralized and more powerful, but in terms of key industries are looking to become more controlled as well. Definitely. So last week, another important thing that was announced was the nomination of the new central bank chairman. And this guy has been with the central bank for 20 years. So there will be a continuation in terms of the way they want to make the policy in the future. So yeah, I think it's definitely it's a further centralization of the power and further continuation of the existing policy. And you, you talked just now about sort of the shadow banking system. There's a lot of talk about shadow banking, but I'm sure a lot of people actually don't know what shadow banking is. Can you give us a, a couple of sentences on what shadow banking is and why it's important in the China economic context? Right, so in shadow banking, one big part is the off-balance sheet loans, and another part is the uh, wealth management products. So for the first part, because the Chinese economy has been quite rigorous over the past 20 years, and the GDP has maintained a two-digit growth for for a long time, and now it's down to 6.5% GDP growth, but it's still very rigorous. So over the past 20 years, a lot of people think that whatever they invest in China will have a very good return, and a lot of SMEs need money to grow their business. But it's very difficult to get loans from the official channels. As a result, they went for the shadow banking system to get the money to grow their business. So off-balance sheet loans are a major part of the shadow banking system. And another part is the private wealth products. It includes like investments in real estate, corporate bonds, etc. For this part, a lot of Chinese people, they have become quite wealthy over the past 20 years. And they want to catch up the dream of become rich overnight <laughs> and together with the state. Yeah. So they are very interested in these kind of products, especially many of these projects are backed up by the government. Yeah. So people believe that whatever is backed up by the state will have a good return in the future. But I guess, as you said, they're off balance sheet, so they're not yeah. being recorded anywhere. And therefore, if you've got people who are trying to access higher returns, i.e. there's higher risk, and those transactions are not on the balance sheet, then you've got something, looking back to the regulatory issue, you've got something which isn't necessarily tracked by the regulator. So 
bringing it back to the, the merger, the, the insurance um, and the banking regulators, do you think that this is now an opportunity for them to, or do you think they'll use it as an opportunity to crack down on shadow, shadow banking and bring everything within, within the control of, of um, sort of the, fine, the, the banking and insurance regulators? I think that will be the challenge for the central bank in the next few years. Because if you look at the shadow banking system right now, it's very complex and the size is huge. For the shadow banking system, state-owned enterprises are heavily involved. So it will be quite hard to get control of it. If you look at last year, the growth of shadow banking system has been slowed down already. But the fact is that the regulator has rechanneled a lot of debts into the official channel from the grant system, uh, underground system instead of reducing them. So I think a big challenge for the central bank in the future is actually to reduce this amount of debt instead mm -hmm. of just rechannel them into another part. So a lot of work for the regulator to get on with. Yeah, <laughs> <laughs> it will be a big challenge, big challenge for the new chairman. And then let's go full scale, let's go over to the, to, to the US. So Freya, what's going on between the US and China in terms of tariffs, um, is this going to go to a full trade war, or is this just a, a storm in a teacup? So, at the beginning of the month, uh, the Trump administration announced that they'd be raising tariffs on steel by 25% and on aluminium by 10%. And a lot of people are viewing this as like, the first step on a road to escalation to a, a full-scale trade war. Um, but actually, the impact on China is is pretty minimal, like 94% of steel is already taxed going to the, into the US, um, and China isn't even one of the biggest supplies, not even in the top 10 um, suppliers of these metals to the US, um, but it's more the threat of es escalation that would be um, most impactful. So do you have any idea in terms of obviously, what is, is this just a symbolic thing, it's obviously the, the US has previously supported China and sort of try to quantify them or classify them as a, as a currency manipulator, which again um, opens the, the US to sanctions. Now obviously we've got threats of trade tariffs being put in place, but obviously, you know, whilst it's a, it's a big noise, particularly for the, for the US steel industry, because there's a relatively large number of people still working in the US steel industry, but in terms of the imports that are going to be impacted in China, it's still relatively small. Is this just grab the headline grabbing, or is this something that's more, more likely to come out of it. You talk about escalation, what do you think could be the possible next steps coming out of it? So I think it kind of depends what the Trump administration is doing here um, and like what its motives are. So that's always clear. Uh, yeah, quite. <laughs> so it's definitely an area of uncertainty. Um, they claimed it was because of national security, because of like cheap steel and aluminium kind of flooding the market and um, from China, despite the fact that. Um, China isn't a big supplier of either of those metals. And I think it's more to do with like living up to, to campaign claims. So Trump in his campaign uh, claimed that he was going to slap like 35 to 45% tariffs on Chinese products. And coming up to the midterms, I think he's seeing pressure to kind of deliver on those claims. And also with the, um, the cooling tensions in mm -hmm. um, the Korean Peninsula, this could kind of be a way to show his strength in that region. But also, Freya, um, for, in order for this to become an escalation, you need to have a good kind of response or a bad response from China. So what have they kind of done in response to um, Trump's tariffs? 
So they've come out and publicly said that they don't want a trade war. They've said that, that no one's going to win from a trade war, but they are going to respond if it got to that. So what they've done at the moment is they've, um, they're investigating, like, they've started an investigation um, against anti-dumping on, on sorghum, which is like a main um, US export to China. But that's kind of the most direct it's, that they've been, Yeah, right? that is the most direct that they've been. They really haven't responded with any sort of, like, real impactful yeah. action and they even claim that that um those investigations aren't to do with the u.s raising which is interesting because Definitely. once again you're seeing the u.s as the kind of volatile Party, inflammatory yeah, player quite. um and coming up against like quite a calm moderate um opponent yeah. well, it's not it's not necessarily in china's it's not how they do things they don't generally go around banging on drums it's m- m- in the same no. way that you'd expect to see in the US. Yeah, or it's in much North more, Korea, It's much more example. subtle and more soft yeah. that they will generally go around doing yeah. it. There's lots of other ways, lots of other levers, economic levers that they can pull, which wouldn't necessarily grab headlines, for example. Yeah. Like yeah. stop buying US treasuries might be a way of yeah, um, having a significant impact yeah. on the US. But it seems that Trump is kind of banging these drums across Asia and just absolutely getting no reaction from anyone. Yeah. You, I mean, you've seen the same thing in North Korea, right? Yeah. He tried to be inflammatory and it's just not happening. I think also there's a cultural there's a cultural difference there. I mean, everybody talks about sort of, you know, the, the sort of Americans being a little bit more bombastic yeah. from a cultural perspective. And you know, anybody who's sort of spent any time living or working in, in, in Asia recognises that it's a... It's a more conservative, more reserved thing. So, you know, what you say isn't necessarily what you think, um, but what yeah. you think is very, very important. And I think what we might be seeing is, is part of that is what's a trade war in the traditional terms, which is if we slap a tariff on this, somebody else slaps a tariff on that. Yeah. I don't think that's a game that the Chinese are going to want to play. I also think the Chinese are, are very aware of the fact that there will be no winners from this trade war. Like, the two... Like big superpowers, big economic superpowers, having a trade war with each other isn't just going to damage both of their economies massively. It's going to impact like global GDP, and and no one really wants that. As China has come out and said, well, they it, don't want. That. It usually benefits a third party because it's somebody who is not impacted by the trade yeah. war will then come into the vacuum that's created by there and start supplying into both markets. So it, I, I don't think China wants that. I think the US yeah. is, is is much more of a it's an industry protection thing, and I think there's 140,000 people, I think the, the number of people working in the US steel industry, mm-hmm. out of a population of 350 million. It's a very, very small number. And that compared to the number of people that work in industries that used to, I think it's 5.6 million people. Which is still a relatively small number compared to the whole the, US yeah, population. Yeah. Exactly. Exactly. What kind of a president do you think these isolationist policies of Trump, I mean, he's, he's gotten out of the NAFTA, and now this tariffs would it have on other countries? Would, 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 would other countries also employ a more isolationist policies going forward? Or but also, what's the be... effect of these tariffs on these yeah, other countries yeah. I was going to well? say, I don't think anyone's, anyone's really winning from these um, isolationist policies. So, like, South Korea, Brazil, and the EU um, are going to be hit really hard by these, these tariffs. Canada and Mexico will be also, but Trump's now come out and said that um, they don't. They're exempt from exempted, the tariffs. Yeah. They, they went from the biggest losers to the biggest winners from this whole thing. Because who's that? Uh, uh, Canada and Mexico. Because okay. um, they're the two biggest importers, and they were all up in arms against it, understandably. And the um, EU's demanded to be exempt, right? Yeah, it's demanded to be exempt. Yeah, it's made loads of threats about raising tariffs on on US uh. goods themselves. Um, and obviously, this has caused a little bit of a, a 
So there's a massive trade war, but there's going to be loads of exemptions. And China seems to be staying out of it. And, and they don't even affect China that much. I think, in answer to your question, Hayesh, I think it's these don't seem to be going very well for Trump. And I don't think in this like age of globalisation and increased contact, and um, it's going to benefit anyone, really. I mean, the, the US has historically been pretty isolationist, and it hasn't worked out for them well in the past. <coughs> so I don't think that it's going to have um, that much of an effect on other nations. So let's look Policies. at another thing in the US then, toys. So another nail in the retail coffin has been um, hit uh, with the, uh, I think, Chapter 11 bankruptcy protection for um, for Toys R Us. Um, I think most people who are listening to this will either have bought something from Toys R Us or begged someone to buy something for them from Toys R Us. So they, they're talking about closing 700 stores in the US. Aish, what's the, uh, what's the, what's the take on this? Yeah, it's, it's, it's quite a sad story. I mean, we've all bought stuff from Toys R Us as kids. But Toys R Us, I mean, it's, it's just kind of a larger picture from the retail industry in the past few years, especially in the US, which, I mean, 2017 was dubbed as a retail apocalypse in the US and saw more than 8,000 stores uh, shutting down. And, and not just Toys R Us, it was a whole host of other retailers shut down, but mainly for the toys industry. So the Toys R Us was, in effect, fighting a two-front war. So on one side, uh, toy sales were going down. Not going down, but they weren't going as fast as, say, tablets or video games were going in. And there was a changing, there was a changing, there was a change in behavior in kids uh, wanting to play more with tablets or smartphones as opposed to physical toys. And the second uh, front was online sales were increasing, and in some places in Europe, had already uh, had more revenue than brick and mortar sales, which Toys R Us specialized in, and unfortunately didn't specialize in online sales as much as compared to say Amazon. So that you know, it was just a combination of both of these things. There were also other issues that uh, impacted Toys R Us. Mainly, the biggest was besides the change in industry and a change in landscape and them not innovating to the same extent. The other big uh, thing that contributed to their downfall was the botched. Uh, leveraged buyout deal in 2005, where they were bought out for, where, where they were put in debt of about 5 billion USD, which they never really recovered from. And Because I, I think if you look at Toys R Us, all they're doing is reselling other people's products. There's nothing <clears throat> unique about Toys R Us other than the fact that when, when it first started, it was just the biggest toy shop mm. in the world. And so it acted as a, as, a, as a pool, particularly if you look at sort of US and European malls where you've got, you want to bring footfall in, then it was a very, very good mm -hmm. footfall attractor. Um, but I think if you look at it now, where people often will just buy stuff um, on Amazon, if they may go to Toys R Us to go and look at it, but then they'll go online and do the, the, the price search. And if you don't have a, a compelling, it doesn't matter how many, what percentage of your sales are online versus offline, if you don't have a compelling proposition, you're probably doomed to, to disaster as well. And I think, as you said, with the, the leverage buyout, if a large proportion of your, you know, Operating profits is going to be um, uh, is going to have to pay down debt, and um, then you've actually got no room for manoeuvre in trying to sort of restructure yourself um, under normal conditions. Yeah, so that's basically what happened. I mean, you talk about uh, the operating uh, profit. So basically, most of their operating profit was going back into paying the debt, which left them not much room to manoeuvre. But then you spoke about uniqueness or just changing uh, as the market changes. In the 60s and 70s, when Toys R Us started, it was a great idea, it was unique, but then as times moved forward, people started to look, especially if you were not online, if, if you weren't a physical storefront, people wanted 
something else in your store. And Toys R Us had all the scope and, all, and, and had all the chances. Yeah. They could have transformed their stores into, you know, they could have had... They could have had hosted a Lego championship for all that, yeah, but then they just yeah they yeah. just left it at that toy big selling shop. Yeah, I was just gonna say that toys are like the crux of experience, right? Yeah. So if you're a kid and you get to go to a toy shop, I'm not gonna be five years old and buy my toys online. So they really did have that opportunity to just totally accommodate to changing shopping habits, and they just didn't. Or as you were saying, they were totally unable to. I, I actually disagree. My five-year-old son can buy stuff on Amazon because I had one click turned on, so it's very dangerous. <laughs> you know, it's but if he had been introduced to that before, yeah. would he? It's quite interesting about Amazon as well, because in the early 2000s, I mean, moving away from these two things, Toys R Us, well, that was at the start of the internet, they, uh, and, and they wanted to go online. Yeah. But what they did was, instead, instead of developing their own um, mechanism for going online, they, they hired Amazon to be their fulfillment Fulfillment oh, interesting. And, and now they, Amazon's going to buy their stores yeah, so as that, well. I think that, that kind of got people used to firstly buying off Amazon and not yeah. Toys R Us. So, and it also hampered well, just the yeah. development of Toys R Us's online um, scope. But, as in, but yeah, and even in the early 2000s, they were seeing competition from Walmart and Target, yeah. who aren't online relay retailers primarily by yeah. any means. And I think... Although e-commerce is a really big part of this story, there's also, you know, they couldn't compete on price, um, their locations of their stores. I mean, as far as I'm aware, they're really big stores, often not in the centre of cities, yeah, right? A kind yeah. of like Amateur. Ikea kind of yeah, model. Yeah, yeah. Um, and, yeah, so I think there's so many things paying, playing into this. And I this. also think if you look at it from a pricing perspective, it is very similar to Walmart in the fact that if you look at the target demographic, it's relatively... Sort of the prices are, are geared towards. It's all you know, it's all made in China, generally speaking. It's all plastic, mm-hmm. um, and it's it's meant to be just get off get off the shelves. You've also got the cyclical nature of toys, which like some I think it's about seventy percent of, of of sales in um in, for toys are in one quarter. So you've got to make yeah. all your money in one quarter to fund the rest of the year. And if you have, a, I think they reported a very, very bad Christmas quarter. Mm-hmm. Um, and mm-hmm. if once you've got that, you, you cannot possibly earn your way out of it. So you've yeah. got a, a very, very um, unresponsive um, uh, industry sector to, 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 to deal with as well. So I think that one of the questions, you know, probably final question for this session is what are we expecting to see out of the US retail sector to next? I would expect us to see probably more firms going down this route, Chapter 11, or you know, just yeah. falling out of them. Yep. Do we have any predictions in terms of who's next? I don't know who's next, but it's definitely going to consolidate. I, I, I think there's concerns over, although I've never been inside, but Claire's, it's like oh, Claire's accessories. accessories. Yeah. Well, or yeah, like very low market kids' accessories, also kind of aimed at that younger generation. Who and are, easily replaceable, said. isn't it? I mean, yeah, yeah, easily replaceable. Um, in the million, UK? 100 million people have had their ears... Um, I wouldn't be surprised but in the UK New Look's just gone down literally last night when you look New Look is I think it's a good example New Look should I remember being involved in a restructuring of New Look 15 years ago Mm. that is an organisation which doesn't deserve to exist Uh, (laughs) their clothes are horrific (laughs) (laughs) Um, but yeah they've just gone down and I think um, yeah as you were saying it's we're not going to see this apocalypse ending anytime soon. Yeah. It's going to consolidate. 
I think everyone needs to understand that they are at the whim of Amazon. Yeah. And whatever yeah. industry you're in, it doesn't matter. Amazon is basically coming for you, so you need to work out what what you've got over Amazon and really emphasize Just that. Just to add a personal note on that point, that's why I emphasize people not, well, if they can, not to purchase from Amazon for <laughs> certain reasons. That's why I, I tell all my family and friends not to buy from Amazon if they all can. All I do is purchase from Amazon. Well, it's just so convenient. It's one click, so my five-year-old can do it. It's like... I know. I can order my pasta, my pens, and my clothes on there. If I had to do the corner shop on Amazon, I'd go to the corner shop. The ethical side of me would go to the corner shop, but the convenient, the convenient busy yeah. like person. Lazy. Lazy, yeah, yeah lazy. <laughs> well, it's not just about um, bringing offline uh, offline shopping experience to online. I think for a lot of retail retailers, it's more about creating new shopping experience offline mm -hmm. by combining with a lot of new technologies like IOTs or big yeah. data, AI. And that's why Amazon is going to, I think, probably going to buy some of Toys R Us's stores, right? Because then it just gives them more footprint to well, make this kind of technological experience of Amazon go, right? It's going offline, like, yeah, yeah. exactly. Well. Yeah. What should we talk about? Yeah. yeah. Cool. It has been a great discussion. That's all the time we have for today. Follow us on Twitter at Typhoon Buzz, iTunes and SoundCloud at Typhoon Talks for podcast episodes. Also, welcome to visit our website at Typhoon